Before we get into the text itself, I want to pose a question to you that I pray that hopefully you will not stop thinking about soon. It may even haunt you for the rest of your life. Here's the question. What are you doing today that you could not accomplish apart from the power of God? In other words, ask yourself that question. What am I doing currently that I could not do, could not accomplish apart from God's power? Now, we all know that we couldn't even breathe apart from God's help, correct? But beyond that, we would have to admit that he has allowed us to become fairly competent in many areas of our lives. Think about it. When we first trusted Christ, we became sensitive to the fact that we depend on him for absolutely everything. Amen? But as we grow in Christ and we become more proficient let's say, at spiritual disciplines and spiritual things. And we develop this tendency to depend less and less on him and trust more and more in ourselves. For instance, let me give you this as an illustration. A week ago, my wife and I had our granddaughter, Nora, for the day. That happens quite often. And she's just about, just turned one. She's just learning how to walk. And she was almost ready to do it on her own. You could just see it. She so desperately wanted to take the risk and step out into empty space unattended, right? But she still wanted to hold our hands in order to feel confident. If we let her go, she'd immediately sit down. Retreat to the safety of crawling. So that night when we dropped her off at home, I told her mom, I said, you know what? She's going to be walking by the end of the weekend on her own. And sure enough, it happened. She got it. In fact, now she's running. (laughs) There was a video posted on Facebook this week. I couldn't believe how fast she was going. Now, she'll still let us hold her hand, but she really doesn't even need it anymore. In about a week from now, she won't even want it. She'll pull away from it. She won't want anyone to hold her hand because that will only make her feel restricted. She'll want to do it all by herself. And that's precisely the attitude that potentially resides in each one of us on a spiritual level. But sometimes God has to step in and remind us that there's always another challenge around the corner that requires us to reach for him. The first time that that little girl, my granddaughter, approaches the top of a staircase, she's going to need her mother's hand again, isn't she? Guaranteed. And the question I want to ask you today is simply this. Is there any challenge in your life right now that is large enough, that is so big that you have no hope of accomplishing it apart from God's hand? Are you standing at the top of any staircases? In the words of an insightful author, if not, then consider the possibility that you are seriously under-challenged. Turn to Luke 5 if you're not there already. This is a passage that warrants our attention because it shows us not only that a strong faith is developed through our recognition of Christ's lordship, 
his sovereignty over us. But the hardest place for us to come to terms with that truth is the very place in which we have the most confidence in ourselves. In other words, in whatever area of your life that you feel the most competent, that is the area in which Christ wants you to depend more and more upon him. That's going to take some unpacking. But I think by the end of this, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Although Luke is describing Peter in this passage, I think every one of us can place ourselves right in his shoes. Look at the first four verses of Luke 5 with me. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him, listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now, in studying and comparing the Gospels, you will discover that Peter had already been called to faith in Christ, by Christ earlier in the ministry. This wasn't the first time that he encountered Christ. If you compare John 1, 35 to 52, Matthew 4, verses 18 and following, and Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, you will find that Peter had already had encounters with this preacher from Nazareth. He was called as a disciple already, but he had not yet been commissioned as Christ's apostle. Peter was still a bit reluctant in his commitment to follow Christ fully here. He hadn't yet bought in to all this Messiah stuff. As this particular scene opens and unfolds, we find that he was still operating his fishing business along with his brother Andrew and his partners James and John. In a very real sense, Peter still had his feet in shallow water. He was still operating in the area in which he was most confident in. What was that? Fishing. Fishing. It was his it was livelihood. Christ, however, shows up on the job site one day, and Peter is confronted with the fact that if his faith was ever going to, de- be, to become developed. If he was ever going to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, he couldn't stay where he was in the shallow water of self-sufficient safety. His faith in Christ needed to grow. His trust in Christ needed to be stretched in order for him to go deeper. Now, I'm sure that when he got up that morning and dressed for work, he had no idea that this encounter with Jesus would forever change his life. Wherever you are right now in your journey with Christ, I'm here to tell you that that's exactly, that's exactly what he wants to do with you and with me as well. And it doesn't usually happen at a time when we choose it or try to prepare for it. It's not going to happen when we say it's time It often happens when one day Christ shows up and takes us by surprise. He challenges us where we feel the most confident and secure in our lives. 
Christ is always calling us to a deeper level of faith. Like learning how to swim, we're constantly being moved out into deeper and deeper waters and challenged to greater trust, not in our own abilities, not in our own selves, but in Christ himself. How does this all take place? Well, if we look at this passage of Scripture, we'll see the pattern that Christ uses with Peter. Maybe we can make some application to our own lives. And I'm going to call this Peter's journey into deep water faith. Deep water faith develops first when we comply with Christ, even in the face of our frustration. Now, I just read to you the first four verses. Let's move on to verse 5. Simon answered after Jesus said, Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. This is what we call the first step principle. The first step principle. It goes something like this. You and I can hear stories about God's power, about God's sufficiency, all day long. But that information alone is not enough to transform us or to deepen our trust. Tracking with me? In order for that to take place, a first step is required on our part. This is the test of obedience, compliance with Christ. Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, for example, actually... I'll, I'll read verse 9, and then I'm going to move to verse thirteen, uh, chapter 3, verse 13. In Joshua chapter 1, God said this, Have I not commanded you, to Joshua, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, begin, actually, we're going to back up to verse 12 and say, Now then, take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel. They're standing at the Jordan River. One man for each tribe. And it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. So when the people set out from the tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all of its banks all the days of harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those which were flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off so the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the nation, all the nation, had finished crossing the Jordan. Here's the principle. The priest had to get in the water before God would act and part the water. This was different than when it happened to Moses. They had to get their feet wet. They had to take the first step. They had to trust God. And as we just read, the Jordan River was at a flood stage. We're not talking about a little stream here. We're talking about river rapids, possibly. 
But those priests with the Ark of the Covenant had to step into that water before God would act. 2 Kings chapter 5 is another example. Verses 1 to 14, we don't have to read all of these verses. But the fact of the matter is, Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man. He highly respected, but he was a leper. And he wanted, basically, he wanted to be cured. Somebody told him, this little girl told him, about the prophet that could cure him. And so he goes to the king, and he says, send me to this prophet so I can get healed. Basically, I'm summarizing it. So, verse 8, it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, and said word to the king, saying, why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. But, don't you love it when the next verse always starts that way? But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand all over the place and cure the leper. He's looking for a big show. Are not Abana and the far part of the rivers of Damascus better than the waters of Israel? This Gentile didn't want to go into the order into the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. He had to take the first step. He had to get his feet wet. He had to get into the water. He had to comply with what the command of the man of God was. John Ortberg writes, If I'm going to experience a greater measure of God's power in my life, it will usually involve the first step principle. It will usually begin with my acting in faith, trusting God enough to take a step of obedience. I have to get my feet wet. Are you willing to get your feet wet? Do you think that these guys were a little hesitant to take those first steps? We all are, aren't we? None of us can fault Peter for being a little hesitant when Jesus said, put out the deep water and let down your nets. I mean, after all, fishing was Peter's forte. He knew the waters. He was experienced in the trade. It was his place of business. He had inherited it from his father. And he was, he was good at his trade. His feet were firmly placed on solid ground where he was competent. And all of a sudden, here's this carpenter turned teacher telling a fisherman how to fish. No wonder Peter offered a little resistance. Wouldn't you? But in order to actually experience this power of God, he had to get his feet wet and go out into deeper water, so to speak. He had to comply 
even in the midst of his frustration. And to his credit, he did. He did. Look at verse 5 again. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. Now, to be honest with you, I'm, com- I'm surprised he complied at all. I mean, fishing in those days was extremely hard work, physically exhausting work. They didn't have bass boats with 200 horse engines. They didn't, have, they, they didn't have electric trolling motors and plush pedestal seats. They didn't have fish finders. They had a wooden boat about 20 to 30 feet long and a big net which they threw out and brought in and they threw it out and they brought it in over and over and over again. It was difficult, laborious, oftentimes frustrating work. And on this particular day, they had been at it, agonizing exercise in futility. They had caught nothing, and it says they were already on shore washing their nets. They'd been working all night and had caught zilch. They were tired. They were discouraged. They had washed off their nets. They were packing it in. They were finished for the day. To top it off, it was the middle of the day when the fish went deep and you couldn't catch them in a net. Now this hammer-swinging preacher from Nazareth comes along, tells them to push out into deep water and try again. It was the wrong time. It was the wrong place. It was the wrong advice. Yet Peter and I have to hand it to him. Complied. I might have tossed him the net sarcastically and shot back, What? We worked all night. We didn't catch a thing. And now simply because you say so, it should go back out. Hey, here's the net. Have at it. Have fun. I'm all done. Haven't you done that with difficult situations in your life? I worked hard at this. I'm getting nowhere. Have at it, God. I'm all done. I've heard people say that to me. Peter could have said that, but I don't believe by his statement that that was his tone at all. Instead, he did it willingly in the face of all contrary evidence that they would be successful. Peter obeyed Jesus simply at his word. I'm convinced that he complied willingly because of one word in his response. You know what that word is? He called Jesus what? Master. Master. You know what the biblical term master means? It means director or guide. It's a term which implies authority. And Jesus had that. No one could put their finger on it. Why? But everybody knew he had it. Everyone who ever came face to face with Jesus knew he had authority. John the Baptist knew it, said it. The Pharisees knew it, said it. The lawyers of the day knew it, said it. Nicodemus knew it, said it. The woman at the well found out about it and said it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And people still know that Jesus has authority today and somehow here Peter knew it. Maybe he had heard about it or he had seen it on previous occasions. We don't know. Rewind a little bit. Up to chapter 4, look at verses 31 to 40 here for a moment. 
Jesus had already demonstrated his authority in verses 31 and 32. And he came down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Here's Jesus' authority in teaching. Okay, he's teaching on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching for his message was with, say it, authority. Verse 36. And amazement came upon them. Well, let, let, me, let me read down through again. Back up to verse 33. In a synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And here's the kicker in verse 36. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with what? Authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. So he had authority in teaching, authority in spiritual warfare. Verse, verse 38. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. And now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and she immediately got up and waited on them. And while the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Jesus had authority over the physical in healing as well. He had authority over all these areas and much more, but I don't think that Peter really thought that Christ had authority over the fishing business. That was his personal expertise. By the way, is there any area in your life that you think that Christ has no authority or business telling you what to do? Don't be too quick to answer. Peter complied with Christ's wishes. Maybe only out of respect for Christ. But still, he took him at his word. Note his words. I will do as you say, Master. I think the King James says, but at your bidding, I will. But at your bidding, I will. Do you realize the power of those simple words? For you and I to say, but at your bidding, Jesus, I will do what you ask me. Underline those words and make them your mantra. Basically, what he's saying to Jesus is the answer is yes, Jesus. Little did he know that by saying yes to Christ's command, it would lead him into deeper faith. One pastor once suggested that if Peter had not passed this test, I don't think we'd know Peter's name today. Let me ask you, when you have labored and worked at something with everything you have, when you have tapped out your body and your mind and 
and you've come, done everything you know how to do and you still come up unsuccessful, you've packed it up and you decided you're through, I'm done, are you willing to go back out in the same area at Christ's command to try again? Even when the circumstances seem ridiculous to you and the conditions are totally adverse to you, when it comes that that nothing, when it seems that nothing will ever come of your efforts, are you up for giving it another attempt simply at Christ's bidding? Working at a marriage that seems to be going absolutely nowhere? You willing to take Christ at his word about what to do? Are you open to launching out into deeper water, to trusting in him and to keep trying to say, Lord, I'm tired. I've been working hard at it for so long and I've accomplished nothing. I don't think I can do it anymore. But at your bidding, I will give it another shot. Are you willing to say that? Maybe it's a strained friendship or an estranged relationship with a family member and you've tried to make things right, but to no avail. Jesus says, try again. Are you willing to comply? But at your bidding, I will. Struggling with a personal problem you can't seem to handle, an addiction you can't break, a sin you keep falling into, an emotional dysfunction that plagues you, Are you willing to put out into deeper water to let Christ steer the ship, to let his spirit fill the sails and move you along? Are you willing to say, at your bidding, I will? Quite possibly you've been witnessing to an acquaintance for years. You've prayed, you've shared your faith, you've bared your heart, you're frustrated. You've been at it all night, so to speak. The net's still empty. Jesus says, try again, go fishing again. Go deeper with that person. Let down your net. Are you willing to go back and do it again? Simply at Christ's word. Commentator A.T. Robinson wrote, sometimes we need to fish again. We need to fish again where we failed before. We must go down deeper than we were before. We must fish again and again and again you want to go deeper, you have to be willing to commit to the first step principle. Take Christ at his word. That's step number one. Obey him even in the midst of your frustration. That's the kind of response that leads us to deep water faith. Peter's great comeback was, at your word, I will. If you're in Peter's boat right now, you need to respond. Master, I've worked hard at this and have come up empty. But if you say so, I will. It's okay to wrestle with it. Nothing wrong with wrestling with that. Peter wrestled with it. But at the end of the day, when Jesus says to follow his directions, you got to surrender. you got to just say yes. Because what happens when we take Christ at his word is nothing less than miraculous. Look at verses 6 and 7. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And so they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats 
so that they began to sink. Now, I'm not saying to you that miracles will always take place in your life or in the ministry, but I am saying that when we put out into deeper water and comply with Jesus, incredible results are produced which add to the development of our strong faith. Deeper faith begins to develop in us when we comply with Christ in the face of our frustration. That's the first element. Second one is pretty similar. The deep water faith is going to develop in us when we confide in Christ in the face of of our failure. The face of our failure. And that's verses 6 and 7 here that I just read. See, they were at the wrong place at the wrong time and against all odds, according to Peter's mindset, the impossible not only became possible, but it became tangible. They had so many fish that it was about to sink the ship. Human impotence was silenced by heavenly providence. The boat sank with the abundant provision that God gave. Now, I love to fish. My, my son, Matt, he's an f- avid fisherman. He used to do all the bass tournaments in Maine. You know, I remember one summer day he came home after going fishing in one of these tournaments. He caught something like 50 fish. Good-sized ones, too. But neither he or I have ever caught enough fish to sink a boat. That's because we've never been fishing with Jesus. I've been fishing with some pretty crazy characters. Not quite the same thing as fishing with Jesus. When you fish with Jesus, you come home with a miracle. When I fish with some guys, it's a miracle I came home. It's just crazy. I could tell you some stories. But here's here's another test that's happening here. It's the who deserves the credit test. We all have that one, don't we? Who deserves the credit test? It's a terrible blow to your ego to realize that you're inadequate, especially when the inadequacy is revealed in the field in which you thought you were an expert. Now, Peter could have easily come back all puffed up. It's like, well, look at the fish we caught because we went back out, let down the net. No, he didn't take the credit. How often do we do that kind of stuff? Do we? God does some great work. We kind of hedge a little bit, take a little bit of the credit. I can relate to Peter. Yeah, I spent my life studying how to preach, how to prepare sermons, how to exegete the passage, how to outline the text, how to come up with catchy little lines that hopefully stick in your minds. That's what I do. That's, That's what God's called me to do. But there are times when I have studied and I have struggled and I have tried everything I know how to prepare a meaningful sermon, one that ministers to people, and yet I've come up with an empty net and I find myself repeating Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, where he says, who's adequate for these? things. Then at the last minute, when I'm ready to throw in the towel and hang it up, Christ says, put out into deeper water. Let down your net for a catch. And he fills my mind with some idea of some message that was totally different than I had imagined. And the empty words that I was attempting to string together. I don't know how many times I've had to learn that lesson. I don't know how many times more I'm going to have to learn that lesson. But 
as many times as it takes, I know that he's not trying to shame me, but to grow me. How about you? How about you? That's just me. That's just what I do. What about what you do? He wants us to have a deep water faith and develop that way. He wants me to know who deserves the credit. He wants me to know the truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 to 5, where Paul answers that adequacy question. And he writes this. He says, and such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves as anything coming from ourselves. To consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. That's who deserves the credit. It's then, like Peter, that I'm amazed at his generosity and his provision. I mean, I can have confidence even in the face of my human failings. You can too. He fills the nets to capacity until they're about to tear here in this text. He wants you to have that same kind of deep faith. What area of your life are you holding back from God's control? We just sang it. It's sovereign over us. And I warned you about singing those words. And what area of your life will God put his finger on this morning that we say it, but we, we're not really practicing it? Maybe you think you're an expert parent. Well, I think anybody's crazy if they came out with that <laughs> statement. Anyway, Christ is a better one. He may take you out to deep water of your teenage daughter or son's rebellion until you realize your utter helplessness as a parent without Christ. Maybe you're an accomplished artist, a musician, a carpenter, a mechanic, and you think, oh, I've done this so long, I don't need to rely on him for strength. I don't need to go deeper with him. I'm doing just fine. Cranking out the product. I don't need to grow to continue to trust him for what has become so routine for me. You see, nobody ever says that, right? They just live that way. Push comes to shove. When you and I begin to secretly think, what could Jesus possibly teach me about something that I've already been doing for years? Prepare to go for a boat ride. Prepare to have Jesus put you in a place where you either depend upon him or you drown. Maybe instead of a self-sufficient attitude, you're sinking in feelings of just the opposite, helplessness. Are you struggling with your finances, codependent relationship, a problem with covetousness or greed? Do you worry too much? Do you fear too much? Are you a perfectionist and never satisfied with anything? Are you obsessed with guilt over some past sin you've committed? Wherever you are, you will struggle with it until you drop from exhaustion and you will always come up empty as long as you're in the false security of your own sufficiency. Confidence comes from letting Christ fill the net. He is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think, says Paul in Ephesians 3.20. Deep water faith develops when we confide in Christ in the face of our own failure. But there's more. Peter realized that 
he was witnessing, what he was witnessing right in front of him here in this text was way, way, way beyond the natural realm. He realized that he was in over his head. That he was sitting in the boat with the living God of creation. Right then and there, Jesus became more than master to Peter. So the third thing that I see here, verses 8 to 10, is that deep water faith develops when we confess Christ in the face of our human frailty. Verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. The great act of faith, said Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., is when a man decides that he is not God. When Peter realized that he was sharing the boat with God Almighty, guess what became very apparent to him? His sinfulness. It rushed upon him like a tidal wave. He was seized by the fact that Jesus knew those fish were there in that deep water. How could he know that? He could see right through the depth of that dark water to know that those fish were there. But what was more overwhelming to Peter was that he realized that Jesus could see right through him. He could see right down to the darkness of his own soul. And his reaction is a very familiar one in Scripture when people get in the presence of God. Depart from me, get away from me, for I am full of sin. Isaiah did it. Job did it, right? The holiness of God highlights the sinfulness of man. There's a central idea for you. Another sermon right there. The holiness of God highlights the sinfulness of man. Max Lucado wrote that. Others in the Bible have reacted the same way as Peter. Job, in Job, in Job 42, verses 5 and 6, when he comes face to face with, basically ear to face with God, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. You know this one. When the Lord appeared and Isaiah saw him, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then in the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, in verse 17, when the apostle John saw Jesus, the resurrected Christ, when I saw him, he wrote, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. G.K. Chesterton once said, the one spiritual disease is thinking that one is quite well. If the Spirit of God has given you a vision of what you are apart from the grace of God, you know that there is no criminal who is half so bad in actuality as you know yourself to be in possibility. It's a great quote. When you're confronted with Jesus, it's impossible to remain neutral. If you are not his follower this morning, 
You will reject him and make him out to be a joke. If you are his disciple, you will fall down and worship him. If you want a deep water faith, Jesus must be more to you than just a good teacher. He must be more than just a great philosopher or a respected prophet. You must see Jesus as Lord. This is the classic good news, bad news story. And you know the kind I mean, right? Good news, bad news. It's like two baseball-loving friends agree that whichever one dies first will come back and let the other one know if there's baseball in heaven. <laughs> the first one to die, he dies, he contacts his friend. He says, hey, good news. Good news and bad news. Good news is there's baseball in heaven. Bad news is you're pitching on Friday. <laughs> this is a good news, bad news story here. Seeing Jesus as your Lord is both good news and bad news. The good news is, is that he loves you and he wants to bring you to a place where your life is whole, where your life is fruitful, where your life is filled with deep, settled joy. That's the good news, right? And he has the power to do it as Lord. The bad news is, if you've got to, you've got to do it his way. You can't call the shots anymore. You cannot keep doing the things that he calls unacceptable. And too many people are content to deal with Jesus as simply a teacher. They have never understood the concept of falling to their knees before Jesus and saying, Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. The bad news is, is that one day, everyone's going to do that. As it says in Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue, every knee, but then it will be too late for some people. Because they should have done it now. And it will be Jesus who will say to them, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. That's the bad, bad news. So where are you spiritually today? Where are you right now in your soul? Is Jesus really sovereign over you? Is Jesus really Lord to you? Or do you just know him as a good teacher? a master, a guide, or a director. Peter's life changed when Jesus challenged the area of his life over which he thought he was in charge, fishing, the area he thought he could handle on his own. So I ask you again, what area of your life is preventing you from having a new view of Jesus? Will it be worth the consequences in the end? Notice that it wasn't just Peter who woke up to the reality of his own frailty here in verses 8 through 10. But his partners, James and John, woke up to it as well, the so-called sons of thunder, right? They certainly didn't evidence any thunder here. They were flat on their faces while falling at Jesus' feet and they were smelling dead fish in a sinking boat. 
I'm going to tell you, no one can come very close to Jesus and remain proud. No one. You know what it's called? It's called being broken. That's what it takes for deep water kind of faith. It takes confession of Christ's sovereignty in the face of our frailty. And what Christ wants us to see is that apart from him, we can do nothing. Yet as partners with him, all things are possible. Amen? Amen. The late Chuck Colson, former White House aide, founder and chairman of the Board of Prison Fellowship, reflects, he says, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure. That I was an ex-convict. My great humiliation being sent to prison was actually the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the one experience in which I could not glory for his glory. Notice that Jesus didn't keep them floundering on their faces. He comforted them and then he commissioned them. In verse 10, he says says to them, Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. Don't fear. Jesus said, where have we seen that before? Do not fear. Don't be afraid. And with that, their vocations immediately changed. Ironically, they would no longer be catching fish and killing them. Rather, they would be catching men and bringing them to life. The word catching here literally means to take alive. Now, do you think Peter could have known that although he was now standing knee-deep in an incredible catch of fish that in a few short years he would be standing before an incredible catch of 3,000 men when the first church of Jerusalem was born? You have no idea what great things God will do with you and through you when you venture out into deep water with him. Far greater things have been done since that day. Deep water faith comes from obedience to Christ in the face of frustration, confidence in Christ in the face of failure, a confession of Christ as Lord in the face of our own sinful nature. Finally, deep water faith develops when we commit ourselves to Christ in the face of our fear. It's just one verse. It's simply this. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Someone once observed that great acts of faith are seldom born out of calm calculation At the beginning of every act of faith, there is often a seed of fear. Someone else has said that there is a place for fear, but I want to trust to be stronger. And here's the thing. I never want the no of fear to trump the yes of faith. Commitment is a fearful thing these days. Commitment to a woman or a man for the rest of your life, commitment to a church, commitment to your living your life for Christ, they're all scary things. We fear commitment. Why? Because commitment costs. And one of the things that makes commitment to Christ so scary is that it's no small sacrifice. It will cost. It will cost you. But as one man once said, John Henry, Henry Jowett used to say, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. 
Commitment to be a disciple of Christ, one that has deep water faith, will sometimes cost you what you think is most precious to you. You must be willing to give it if Jesus requires it. For God's glory, not many people want to read that verse in verse 11, because when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Christ. They left the fishing business. They abandoned their most precious possessions. They left everything. Now think about that for a minute. They left their lucrative lifelong occupations, their families, their personal goals, their familiar surroundings, their fish, their boats, their homes. But you know what? I believe they got it all back. But for God's glory, not theirs. Because in Luke chapter 18, just a few chapters further, Verse 28, Peter said, Behold, Lord, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much as at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Whatever you leave for Christ, you get back somehow for God's glory. Now, don't go leaving your husband or wife to follow Jesus. That is not what we're talking about here. However, by comparison, Christ must take precedence over everything. Anything in your life that's more precious to you than Jesus will keep you from deep water faith. So maybe it's time to stop kidding ourselves about our own ability to swim while we thrash around in shallow water of our self-sufficient lifestyles and charter a boat trip out to the deep water with Christ who calls us to drop what we have and follow him. Because we will never experience true freedom in life until we exhibit total dependence on God. How much faith do I need? Just enough to take Jesus at his word. That's it. Not a feeling of certainty, writes one man. Just enough faith to take the first step. We leave you with this. Some of you know this story. When my grandfather was a little boy, his father took him out in a boat. He rowed him out to a rock situated in the middle of a pond. And he placed him on that rock. And his words to my grandfather as he rowed away were, if you want to get back for supper, you'll have to swim. He didn't know how to swim. But that is how my grandfather learned to swim. In the face of utter frustration, in the face of almost certain failure, in the face of his youthful human frailty, and in the face of overwhelming fear, he put out into deeper water and learned how to swim. He was willing to risk everything and take the step. Why? To follow his father. Are you that willing to follow yours?